welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter Mumley. And we are joining you on another fine Friday day that may be Saturday or Sunday or whenever you might be listening to it to read a beautiful poem, talk about it, and read it again. It's how we like to do things here. It's the only way we know how to do it. We sometimes try to read poems other ways and it just doesn't work. It's like it just falls out of your hand. You can't even do it. One time I tried to talk about it, but then I hadn't read it. Rookie mistake. Yeah. So uh, then one time I read it and then I read it again. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of felt like the first time that I read it. Didn't talk about it in between. Another rookie mistake. Been there, yep. done that. Won't do it again. Nope. The format is set in a beautiful stone. Before we get into it, if you have a moment, we love if you go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever the it's called. Give us a five stars. Give us a rating. It really means a lot. If you want to also suggest anything, we just did a wonderful Kathy Fagan poem, which was suggested by a listener Bertha Strand. Yeah, and a quick special shout out to Chris Beaver, who was nice enough to write us. Uh, that was super sweet. Thank you. Today's poem is by the wonderful poet Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. The poem is called Gesture with Both Hands Tied. It's from Hernandez Castillo's debut collection, Sensontle. came out in 2018. Hernandez Castillo was a founding member of the Undocu Poets, which was an activist and still is an activist group that was pretty much responsible entirely for getting rid of the citizenship requirement of all the major poetry prizes in the U.S. He was born in Zacatecas, Mexico, and immigrated to California when he was five, was undocumented for some time. So... We've got lots to talk about, but without further ado, this is Gesture with Both Hands Tied by Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. I'm going to open the borders of my hunger and call it a parade. But I'm lying if I said I was hungry. If dying required practice, I could give up the conditions for being alone. I undress in the sun and stare at it until I can stand its brightness no longer. Why is it always noon in my head? I'm going to run outside and whisper, or hold a gun and say bang, or hold a gun and not do anything at all. The lamps that wait inside me say, Come, the gift is the practice, the price is the door. Well, Connor, I'm going to <laughs> hand it to you yet again with an excellent pick into which I know not how to begin <laughs> uh, accessing necessarily. It does not uh, leap off the page invitingly and say, Hello, make meaning of me. Uh, It says, get over here. You need to figure this out. 
which <laughs> I'm perfectly down to do. I enjoy those kind of poems a great deal. I think this poem is super cool, but yeah, this one. Yeah, dang. this is a tough one. And admittedly, I was kind of reading around and I had heard of this book and I was reading some of his stuff and partly it was the last stanza that I just thought was so cool. Yeah. It was like, the lamps that wait inside me say, come, the gift is the practice, the price is the door. Which I didn't really know what that meant at first, but it was very... One thing that's very striking about this poem is the confidence of the, the how declarative it is, you know. But what is also challenging is there's a there's many parts of it I think that are challenging. But the the strangeness of it, like the lamps that wait inside me, is such a, you know, I don't um, normally notice lamps that are inside myself. And the the gift is the practice. The Price is the Door has such a, like, aphoristic format, almost, like a form of the this is the that and the this is the that. But then it's like, what is the gift? Like, what is the practice? What is the door, I guess? Um, what is the price? I mean, literally every part of that, you're kind of... <laughs> no, because you're so right. And it's a perfect encapsulation of the way the poem feels throughout, which is sort of, as you were saying, it's this intense juxtaposition between strong declarative statements that are pretty clearly stated that also are very hard to understand. Yes. And there's that, like, clear voice, wild statement back and forth happening the entire time. No, it's, it's really right. And I read it, I read this poem before I read the book, and then I was like, okay, I gotta get the book. And then I read the book, and it's really a great book, and I very much recommend it. And then I was kind of reading about the book, and normally I like to wait a little bit to get into reviews or more like scholarly takes, but I kind of feel like there was a little bit of framing that was helpful for me from this one review that I read that might sort of get the the wheel going, because it had a thought that I was thinking about, but then it put it well. So this is a review from the Harvard Review of the collection as a whole. It doesn't mention this poem specifically. Um, it, sort of referring to the book perhaps, uh, is instead a liminal space of constant change, being continually made and unmade through both miracle and trauma. And then there's another part. And this is, if this is just seeming like a lot, it's not important, I think, to like understand the exact flow of thought, but there's a bunch of like ideas in this that I found helpful. So then the reviewer is going on and is like, um, D.A. Powell's blurb points out that Hernandez Castillo also walks alongside Whitman uh, in their mutual containment of multitudes. Tellingly, Senzontle, which is the title of the book, uh, which is the Nahuatl word for mockingbird, Oh, I guess it's the Spanish word that comes from the Nahuatl word sensuntli, which refers to one who holds 400 voices or songs. And there was an interview that he had with that I was watching where he sort of goes on to say that the mockingbird sort of doesn't have its own song. And so it has 400 voices or songs in that it's kind of like imitating or performing other songs. 
which in itself is another expression of a kind of liminality and a kind of, you know, search for identity, you know, question in that terminology for we just spent a significant part of our previous episode talking about the naming of things and specifically the naming of animals and the possible importance of that. I feel like that's an interesting continuation of some of that to know that uh, like linguistic history behind the name for that bird. That's pretty cool. And obviously the connection to this book and the poem. Yeah, no, absolutely. The last kind of thing that the reviewer sort of says is like to encounter this is to recognize the inherent fluidity of personal identity and of the U.S. itself, et cetera, et cetera. Then there was one other part, and I know this is like a lot, but it's just sort of gathering of things. In the Paris Review, there was kind of like a profile-ish about Hernandez Castillo, and there's this paragraph, which I think is helpful. Uh, And this is kind of like about when he was still undocumented. Constant hypervigilance made it difficult for Castillo to develop a stable sense of identity, so much so that for many years, the poet avoided writing from a first-person perspective. My poetry doesn't exist anywhere, he says of the poems in this book. My readers have such a difficult time placing them in time and space. There's no body attached to them, no attachment to the real world. This literally comes from this anxiety I had that I didn't want to say too much. And that I felt like was really interesting. That um, is fascinating. Yeah, because I think to your point, like, and this is a recurring thing throughout the book, but but I think this poem sort of sheds it well, is like, you know, we've identified... We've identified a couple things that might make the poem like hard, which is the kind of the strangeness of the language and the claims that's couched within something that you think like it's so confident and declarative that you your mind's like, oh, it must make sense. The gift is the practice. The price is the door. But then it's like, what's the gift? What's the practice? What's the price? What's the door? The other thing is like there's a lot of jumps where it's kind of like non sequiturs where like if dying required practice i could give up the conditions for being alone like on itself not saying i necessarily understand all of that but i can like begin to think about it next stanza i undress in the sun and stare at it until i can stand its brightness no longer okay that's like we're in a totally different place now there's the relationship that those two have don't seem evident to me and then it's like why is it always noon in my head okay i can get we're talking about the sun we can get to the noon part but then it goes i'm going to run outside and whisper or hold a gun and say bang and then suddenly we're the speaker's taking a different action so we're like we're jumping from place to place all the time uh which is another challenge and then i think the other the last kind of piece that is tough, which is definitely something that happens a lot in the book, is this kind of like either contradicting or like restating, but like sort of negating some or all of what just came before. So like the beginning opens, I'm going to open the borders of my hunger and call it a parade. 
But then the next stanzas, but I'm lying if I said I was hungry. So it's like, okay, so you're not hungry. So how are you going to open the borders of your hunger, right? And then this last part, which I think is wonderful, but also I think difficult, is like, I'm going to run outside and whisper. Okay, so he's maybe going to take one action or hold a gun and say bang. Maybe he's going to do that or hold a gun and not do anything at all. There's a lot of like false jumps that are sort of deliberately made. And so I, I found that those kinds of framings helpful, partly just in terms of like one of my like, okay, I just separately last night, Sarita and I were stopped by some evangelical Christians and they talked to us about the gospel for 45 minutes and I just wanted to, we were right outside our home. Anyway, I'm not saying anything about this faith or that faith, but holy crap, I was so mad, so that said, one evangelical purpose I have on close talking is that I feel like there's a lot of poems that seem hard, and a lot of times a reader, including myself, can be like, this is hard, poetry's hard, this poet just wants to like fuck with me and be like, oh, ho, ho, you don't know what I'm saying, it doesn't matter because you're dumb and I'm obscure, and there are definitely poets who are like that, and there's definitely poems that are like that. But there's a lot of poems that I think have very deliberate reasons for being less clear in certain ways. And so even though I don't want to like put a personal sort of lens, like strictly biographical reading of this poem, it was helpful to know that like this kind of sense of him being like in a country where he like wasn't the country didn't like recognize his sort of existence in caused you know like an existential crisis that sort of reverberated through to his poetry and like kind of like undermined what you might like what some poets would feel comfortable doing is just being like, I feel this way when this happened to me. And there's a very like stable sense of self in those poems. Like it's interesting because suddenly that like stability of a self, even if it's going through a hard time, is suddenly like a privilege that those poems and those poets have and can take for granted, which is sort of like, you know, has been, prevented by the oppressive nature of our country. Yeah, so I found that very interesting. And then just like the thinking about liminality, which is a fancy word that just means you're being in, you're in between places, you're not this or you're not that, also was a constant theme for him. The other part of the book that is maybe in this poem, but not like explicitly, is the poet and the speaker is in this like, sort of straight relationship, monogamous relationship, but is also queer and is kind of like, and also is, so is a lot of the book is thinking about the fluidity of sexuality, but also of gender. And anyway, 
this isn't a really a reading of the poem, but I just wanted to like put a bunch of things, throw a bunch of things in there. <laughs> it's a lot um, of important information to have on hand to do a conscientious job accessing this poem. And I think it's telling that that's sort of the way into this as opposed to our more usual narrative rundown, because I don't think there really is one that you could do for this poem. Yeah. Um, and I think that that kind of, I don't know, more scattershot collecting of different pieces of information is useful uh, and helpful in the way that a narrative rundown would normally be for other poems. And there were a couple of things that you brought up that I'm really interested in. The first of which being that point you made about how there's a lot of sort of negating of statements going on in the poem. So there can be equally strong statements that negate each other. You pointed out the first two stanzas. I'm going to open the borders of my hunger and call it a parade. It's the first two lines, the first stanza. And then, but I'm lying if I said I was hungry, which are both really strong, fairly opposed statements. But what's interesting to me is that the seeds of negation are in the first statement itself because it's essentially talking about an abundance of lack, which is highly contradictory. I'm going to open the borders of my hunger, lack of food, or like you could read it as a more spiritual hunger, thoughts on that to come, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> and call it a parade, a celebration. I'm going to celebrate how like deprived I am of food or spiritual fulfillment. Like that doesn't make any sense. It's already like leading into this double negation because your hunger isn't really going to be on parade and then you're lying if you say you're hungry. So not only is it negated, but even in that first strong statement, it's like, wait a minute, what's happening here? I'm being sort of tossed back and forth even before I'm fully thrown aside. And that kind of happens later on with I'm going to run outside and whisper or hold a gun and say bang or hold a gun and not do anything at all. It's again that like doubling and tripling down on zigzagging, which reminded me of, you know, we brought this example up a couple times, but it reminds me of To Make a Prairie because there's like so it's it almost mirrors it. To Make a Prairie, it takes a clover and a bee, one clover, one bee, and reverie. The reverie alone will do if bees are few. It's like, well, what does it take to make a prairie? <laughs> Emily Dickinson, will you just get it together and stop this confusing poetry nonsense and give me some cold, hard, scientific, verifiable, repeatable, hypothetical, testable truth? And it's like, nah, I've got something better. It's called poetry. What's up? Uh uh, so yes. like that not only do these statements end up negating each other but even within the statement there's negation going on and the way that those statements are given strength in a lot of cases is this very present i and so i'm going to open the borders of my hunger and call it a parade is like a really strong this is what i'm gonna do or i undress in the sun and stare at it until i can stand its brightness no longer why is it always noon in my head? Like, even there, you've, you don't necessarily have a big shift because brightness is associated with noon. So it's not really negating in terms of content, but it's negating in terms of tone because you have this really declarative, like, ripping your clothes off in the heat, big feeling. You know, you can feel the orchestral strings coming in. It's like, ah, oh, stare <laughs> at the brightness of the sun until it is too much for me to take. And then 
we actually get that feeling of, oh, it was too much to take. Why is it always noon in my head? You get this sense of like this sun that could have been warming and comforting is actually it turns pretty harsh because its brightness is something that can't be stood any longer. And then this question, the sun that should be outside is somehow like in your own head, this weird internalization. But my main point here is that there's this very strong, clear and present I making all these statements, which is why I thought it was so interesting when you mentioned um, that quote about like a lack of a body going Mm -hmm. on, because I literally wrote down on my notes as I was going through this poem, I wrote the word body and then put little lines going out from it of all the things the body that was never mentioned in the poem was doing. (laughs) Because, and I was thinking of that old, like, I don't remember what it is, but it's like if you have a bunch of people who can't see standing around an elephant touching different parts of it, they'll all report something different. I don't remember what, I I think it's an elephant, but I had that sense as I was reading this poem because you get all of these eyes. So there is a body there somewhere, but you don't get a clear sense of what that body is. You just know that it's whispering that from the title, its hands might be tied. At one point it undresses, at another point it's running. There's lamps inside of it and it's not hungry. (laughs) Or like the list I made of things, but... I thought that was so fascinating because I had not come across that quote in my own preparations for this episode, but I felt like I'd sort of gone through the steps of moving towards that, of like, where is the body in this poem? Because you have the eye, but where, where is the physicality associated with it? And it is so much also what you were saying, like there's these really strong statements, but they aren't given substance. They're just kind of out there and they're made a little bit more ephemeral by the fact that they're constantly being if not taken back whatever is added to them changes what came before so much that it's almost like it wasn't there or it's being there is so different now that it kind of doesn't matter the way it initially was there yes yes um okay wow there's i've had some thoughts the title is helpful in a strange way in that a gesture with both hands tied sort of a gesture is like not quite an action, but it's like I'm giving you a sense of something or like we're gesturing towards a topic, but it's like not the topic. Uh, But then also the speaker's hands are tied. So there's this sense of constraint or restraint or an inability to act, which is kind of like, like nowhere in the poem do you get the sense that the speaker has their hands tied, but like those things are kind of like enacted in the poem that like there's these gestures toward things, but they're not really happening. And like the speaker can't do something for some reason. Anyway, I had been wondering about the title for a while and it suddenly became more meant more to me. I have a thought on the title. And I love where you're going. And I think it also then speaks to some of the ways that the poem itself is a little more oblique, because if your hands are tied, it's harder to clearly gesture towards anything. But I was also thinking of like, well, what does it look like to try and physically gesture with your hands tied? And my first instinct was like, you know, handcuffed. But if they're tied in front of you, the gesture you essentially have to make no matter what is one of like almost prayer hands or of supplication, 
of some sort, which was very interesting for me to think about going through the poem as like a contextualizing idea. But that was something that occurred to me of just like, well, what what does that look like physically, aside from any kind of metaphorical content that it might have? Just what does your body do? Again, I think I became obsessed at some point with the idea of like a physical body associated with this poem. Well, it's interesting because it makes sense that you would be obsessed with the body. Like one thing that's interesting about these poems, even if they may frustrate attempts to decipher, is they reveal the kinds of things that we rely on so much to make meaning and take for granted where like suddenly like even just mentioning any part of the body in the poem would have done any kind of locating of anything would have like done so much for a reader's like maybe mistaken but their sense to create some kind of more concrete image and the lack of that is like it just it reveals how much how important those are so much of the time, um, which I always think is like it says a lot about what I don't know, the kind of the basic assumptions that we have about what makes a self and like what makes a story and and like how we think we can relate to things. But that's sort of like another matter. Um, that's such a good point, though, because by leaving those pieces out in a poem, it just invites you to put whatever your hang up is in there when you're trying to like access and interpret, you know? Yeah. And it is, it's also like, and this again is maybe reading too far into this poem, but in thinking about poems or kind of art's ability to kind of not like make readers step in the shoes of someone else, but like to encounter something of what it's like to be someone else. There's certain like experiences like I have, no idea what it's like to be undocumented or to live constantly in a world that thinks I should not be there, you know, um, and have the threat of force, like sort of looming always. And there's so many different kinds of experiences that for the people who experience them, it's can be so total of what their sense of their world is, because and yet for someone who doesn't, it's like there's just such an inability to understand so much of the time. And it, it uh, without getting into like anyway, I mean, there's so many issues like and are and many other people and countries sort of like unforgivable, either evil actions or lack of actions stem from a truly like not necessarily ability to empathize, but just like an ability to understand at any either an inability or an unwillingness to or a combination of that to understand what it's like to be someone else. And it's interesting in that the challenge for a writer and a poet who's like, this experience is like really integral, but how do you bridge that gap, I guess? Not necessarily saying that this poet is attempting to do that, but there's, I think, the challenge but the reward of something like this poem that has this huge lack that's like so frustrating sort of draws attention to the very thing that is difficult for that poet perhaps like his body is in question or was in question in a certain way and 
for us to like encounter that in a poem is perhaps like a small a way for someone who doesn't who hasn't had that experience to you know maybe understand a little bit more of it um definitely going off the other thoughts that i had of what you were saying because you sparked a number of glorious stars in my head it's usually night in my head by the way just for the record it is not noon it is usually 2 a.m and i'm inside but i know that it's night but i know that even if i went outside i couldn't see the stars because there's so much urban pollution so that's where i'm at um (laughs) you gotta get yourself to a dark sky preserve i do i do but then you know, as, as you were talking about the I'm going to run outside part, just to sort of like, it's fascinating to me because the level of action is like happening in so many ways. Like at the beginning, for one, it's not I'm doing this. It's already I'm going to do this. So we're already speaking in a hypothetical. Then it's like run outside and we're like, okay, maybe we've got something more active. But then it's like whisper, which is like already a kind of a quieter form of communication. Or hold a gun and you're like, oh, okay, gun. Okay, that's something like stronger. It's got threats of violence, etc. But then it's like say bang. So it's like this kind of like, I'm not even going to do something. I'm going to like perform the doing of something. Or, and then it's like another or, or I'm just going to hold the gun and not do anything at all. (laughs) Like as if the saying the bang was like too much of doing something. It's like such a, it's fascinating to me because the distinction between holding a gun and saying bang and not doing anything at all is so small. And so the need to say it is like, there's such, I don't know, such like uncertainty or something That's very interesting to me. And then kind of going off that, the other thing that you were saying is like with these statements, it's like hard to like extract something from the statements. And it suddenly I got this image of like, if this was like on stage, like if there was a play that we were watching and you saw like the actor get up from their chair try to go stage left, change their mind, go back, sit down, stand up, go stage right, sit down, stand up, sit down, say, wait, and then sit down again. The audience would be like, this guy's in fucking hell right now and is going through some serious shit. But that almost would have been like a word (laughs) like a it's exactly the kind of thing that's happening in this poem in that there's like so much i'm almost going to do this i'm not going to do that i'm almost going to go there but i'm not going to do that but that kind of indecision or at least like um because i guess we have a body um, but also we read plays in a different way we would never have the question of like but what's being said here? But if we think about the the speaker as the actor on stage or the character on stage, like trying all of these things and think of it more as a dramatic movement, even if it's a dramatic movement of little movement, 
then I don't know. For some reason, that changes the game because then I'm like, it's less important to me what it means by all of these things and more like why what is it like to be a person who's saying all these things kind of or like what are they saying them for or what are they trying to go while they're saying these things that's being frustrated i guess that makes sense um and one thing that i was thinking about and this is kind of this is where I then I get stumped, and I, there's a there's a thing that I don't know about, and it's like if dying required practice, I could give up the conditions for being alone, and then this end comes again. The lamps that wait inside me say, "Come." The gift is the practice. The price is the door. Partly I just love these lines, and so I want to think about them more, but practice comes up twice, and so I'm like, that seems important. And this is a crude reading, which is why I want to say it, but then I think we can move past it, is the price is the door says to me, once you go through the door, you enter something, you, you do that, then you've committed yourself to something. Or like then you're you're through the door. You're not like in the process of entering or not entering, which is like where the whole poem is. And that's where the price is, like the cost. The cost comes when you commit yourself, right? Like in, in a in another crude biographical way, the cost could be like, you know, I'm out as undocumented or I'm out as queer or like I've I've taken a step and have exposed myself to something and that's the door and that's the price but then the practice is the gift and this whole poem in and this is I think it's crude but I don't know it's like the poem is like a practice like it's like I'm gonna do this or I'm gonna do that or I'm gonna do that or it's like I'm you know because practice is all about this repetition over and over again of, of things. And I should say that, and this is not something that would necessarily come through in this poem, but in the book, and he talks about this in, in an interview that we'll link to, and this is more sort of directly related to like gender and sexuality and the relationship that the speaker's in is like performance is a huge theme throughout the book where like, um, there are these poems called Immigration Interview with Jay Leno, which is a great poem. Um, there's another like Immigration Interview. There's a bunch where like they're like, let's imagine, you know, we're like in a play and we're like the happy couple. And like there's another poem where like they are being watched on TV as a couple. In the interview, he brings up Judith Butler sort of has famously been introduced or at least popularized the idea of gender not being like a fixed fact of your identity but rather a, a performative aspect that is habituated over time through repetition of like performing masculinity or femininity or somewhere in between or whatever so practice is also kind of like a rehearsal as another synonym or something for the performance. 
Anyway, that still doesn't answer the if dying required practice. I could give up the conditions for being alone, but it gets me somewhere. <laughs> I don't know if it's the right where, but I'm somewhere with that, I guess, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, it's definitely interesting. And I guess it sort of introduces the idea that, like, by declaring one way or the other, so along the lines of what you're saying, there's this practice, and then you sort of, in the reveal to society of what you say you are, there's a rehearsal for that. And in doing that, the part of you that might be more complicated that is within you kind of dies to the public because you've announced one particular thing. So that um, that version of quote-unquote dying of the part of you that you, like the more complicated internal part that you would prefer to be a part of your performed identity dies, possibly. And that could get into, you know, the gift is the practice, that uncertainty, and the price is the death of that part of you that is more sort of wishy-washy, complex, unstated, hinted at, that can never be fully externalized for the world to understand, which I think might get back to the line, why is it always noon in my head? Because that line to me read as a very scary line and like a very a frightening prospect because what noon means is there's no shade. Like there are no shadows. On the one hand, you could read that as there's no borders, but I read it as there's nowhere to hide. And sometimes all you want to do in your own head is find room to hide or just be quiet and still and duck away from the parts that you don't want to face or like some ideas that you don't really want to entertain. But if it's always noon in your head and you're always seeing everything and you're always thinking about everything, then that highlights the internal world as this world of containing all and this external world as one where maybe not all of it can be. And there are a couple of times in the poem, so practice is the only word that is repeated in its exact form. You have hunger and hungry, but practice comes up at two points. But some the idea that comes up in a couple of ways is the idea of inside and outside. And so because that runs through it, because something in my head is specifically mentioned, I think it's then interesting the way that potentially ties back with the the door. And a door is nothing if not the bridge between inside and outside, which sort of gets back to our initial discussion of the idea of liminality. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's also interesting because the lamps are like the counterpoint light to the noon sun that is kind of the scary or at least like exposing where the, the lamps that wait inside me are the ones... Like they say, come, you know, like the price is the door, but it feels the lamps are saying it's worth it, I think. I think um, the choice of the word lamps is also so brilliant because it immediately invokes a certain type of light that is very warm and inviting. Even before you hear them tell you to come, the gift, you know, you're already feeling that, you know, just beautiful, golden, soft lamp light. But it's also so different from saying the lights that wait inside me because a lamp is something that you can turn on and off. You have control over it. It doesn't just exist. And I feel like that's such an important part of this because it feels at the end, you were describing like, what if this was a play and you kind of get up and you walk around and then you say a word and you get up and you go over. And on one hand, that's very 
tame and not a lot is happening, but it probably looks fairly frenetic. Like oh, a person sure. doing that looks like they are in turmoil. And at the end here, you're left with a certain sense of stillness that doesn't exist in the rest of the poem because it is lamps. And yeah. it's not in my head, it's inside me, which somehow that phrasing just feels so much more comfortable than why is it always noon in my head? The lamps that wait inside me. These lamps are dormant until I give them life. They are also kind of personified in this last sentence, but the way that they're personified is like, they're here for me. I think that's really right. It's interesting because in the book, actually, lamps come up several times in sort of, I'm not going to read like the whole poems in which the lamps come up, but there's one poem where there's this stanza or like, I told him my Spanish name. There was nothing dry on my body. The lamps falling over in the dark of me. Which actually is quite similar. Like, the lamps are placed similarly in the interior of the body there. At any rate, I think you're really right. There's something very meaningful there. Also, it what you said about the stillness makes a lot of sense because there was another part of the poem that I was kind of puzzling over. It's more formal, but I'm going to open the borders of my hunger and call it a parade. Basically, that stanza is closed. There's a full stop at the end of that stanza. And then the next, second stanza, third stanza, fourth stanza, there's only one stanza where there's not a full stop at the end of the stanza. And that's still a comma. And that's the one where I'm going to run outside and whisper or hold a gun and say bang, comma, stanza break, or hold a gun and not do anything at all. Which incidentally, I feel like is the, the point of the poem that has the most momentum. But what was strange to me is the poem is very still, kind of like rhythmically throughout, but it doesn't feel still. It doesn't feel like frenetic, but it doesn't feel still until the very end, which I think you're really right about saying. And I was kind of like, it's just so interesting because it's really hard to sort of like generate an uneasy, slow, like sometimes I listen to a song and I'm like, this song is so slow, but like it's got, it's moving. You know what I mean? Yeah, Bob and... Seger is really good at that. He's got these mid-tempo ballads, like a bunch of them, and you don't really <laughs> notice quite how mid-tempo they are. They really feel like they're kind of chugging along, but it's just like, you know, against the wind, man. <laughs> exactly. And here, I mean, I think it's all the reasons why the poem is difficult, is the, is the negations and the contradictions and the strangeness creates a kind of tension of meaning that moves the poem forward in a kind of slow but steady way, even as the the formal like stillness of it kind of kind of tries to work against that. But then finally at the end, we're able to reach a kind of stillness that it's hard to put it into words, but like if the poem was really frenetic and then ended the same way, 
it would feel almost too dramatic or something. There's a there's a very specific kind of closure that this poem achieves that would be too dramatic if the poem had t- too much propulsion before, but it needed some kind of closure to indicate the kind of turn that the as you were sort of saying that that there is some kind of thing being accepted or at least considered in a way that hadn't been before. And I just think that's like the difficulty that I have describing it speaks to the difficulty of executing it, I think. Yeah, it's like this very gentle unsettledness. And you're right, the ending is sort of, I don't know, of a piece with that because it's not like the poem is really going wild and needs to be brought to a finite conclusion because the unsettledness is so gentle the resolution needs to be just as low-key and just as understated and i think it really is yeah maybe we should read it again i think we should read it again all right gesture with both hands tied by marcelo hernandez castillo I'm going to open the borders of my hunger and call it a parade. But I'm lying if I said I was hungry. If dying required practice, I could give up the conditions for being alone. I undress in the sun and stare at it until I can stand its brightness no longer. Why is it always noon in my head? I'm going to run outside and whisper, or hold a gun and say bang, or hold a gun and not do anything at all. The lamps that wait inside me say, come. The gift is the practice, the price is the door. This is Connor again. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please, again, feel free to write a review on iTunes. Give us a rating. You can also subscribe. Uh, It's the best way to keep up with new episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Close Talking. And you can follow me, at Connor M. Stratton, or Jack, at Jack Rossiter Mutt. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related news at facebook.com slash talking. And if you have any thoughts or questions or feedback, uh, you can also shoot us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. <laughs>